Hey, church fam, Brad here. Before we jump into this week's sermon, we're going to try to do something a little different to take advantage of all of this being pre-recorded from now on. In a minute, you'll hear me read this week's passage followed by three questions. After each question, I encourage you to take a second, hit pause, and spend a few moments to reflect on that question before going on to the next one. Take it seriously. And then after the third and final one, it will just roll into this week's sermon, after which I'd encourage you to spend a few more minutes reflecting on how your answers may or may not have changed as a result. And just so you know, it's okay if this feels awkward. You may not even like your answers, and it probably won't come naturally, especially at first, but it will over time with just a little bit of repetition. So, without further ado, here is our passage for this morning. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 32. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like the grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So here are your questions. And again, I encourage you to pause after each one to reflect on them. Number one, in light of this parable, who is God and how do I relate to him? Number two, in light of this parable, who am I and how does God relate to me? Number three, how is God calling you to love him, his church, and your neighbor more in light of this parable? These two short parables, the growing seed and the mustard seed, follow last week's parable of the sower and explain how good seed from falling on the good soil, or open hearts as we talked about, grows and bears fruit. The way that seed grows, Jesus says, is the way the kingdom grows. He illustrates two facets of that growth that are surprisingly simple, but really deceptively countercultural. So let's look at each in turn. First, the growing seed parable in Mark 4, 26 through 29. The point Jesus is getting across here is that the kingdom grows organically. And before you mutter some form of, thanks, Captain Obvious, yes, I'm aware how not shocking or profound that claim is, considering we're talking about a parable using agricultural metaphor. But the way we normally use that word gets a little bit in the way of understanding all that he means to communicate the growth of the kingdom, and especially our contribution therein. Let me explain. The nature of this kingdom that Jesus describes is one defined by shalom, The Hebrew word we translate as peace, but which encompasses far more than an absence of hostilities. It carries with it a connotation of comprehensive human flourishing within a society defined by justice, mercy, and humility. The agricultural theme plus the day and night rhythms in verse 27 would instantly bring to mind in the disciples the creation narrative in Genesis 1 through 2 where God speaks a holistic and universal flourishing into existence that is positively teeming with with, with life, with shalom. 
From God's perspective and power, that creative work took a metaphorical six days. As being created in the image of our creator, humanity then is tasked with the mandate to continue that work of flourishing, cultivating shalom from the raw materials God spoke into existence. But that happens so much more slowly through our merely human means and perspective. It takes time for seeds to sprout from hibernation, more time for leaves to extend and collect sunlight, more time for roots to deepen and absorb nutrients, and even more time for fruit to finally ripen for harvest. Now, yes, while modern science can explain how plants grow organically, that all still happens as unseen and apart from any involvement on our part as it did for the farmer in this parable. We can water, prune, and otherwise contribute to its flourishing or not, but we cannot speak it into existence like our creator did. We definitely cannot tweet it into existence. We humans are something between divine and dirt, created from both, yet distinct from them too. Now, we've all said at one time or another that 2020 was the longest decade of our lives. And so far, 2021 is shaping up to be just as much of a time-warping slog. But even before our patience was so acutely and chronically tried, modern American culture was not exactly known for our patience. Quite the opposite, much of our global influence was only made possible because our society is so existentially impatient. The accelerating pace of technological advancement over the last 15 to 20 years especially has come with the promise that increased efficiency will result with our having more time for rest and recreation, or more time for being more fully human. While that might have come to fruition for some cultures, our existential impatience has filled whatever time we've saved and pressured us to fill the vacuum by continuing to do more with less, added nauseam. In January of 2019, uh, BuzzFeed reporter Anne Helen Peterson wrote an article entitled How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, which I'll be sure to link in the email that this goes out in. And with a lot of vulnerability, she describes how the fragility with which millennials are often caricatured has deep roots and a uniquely generational pressure to produce, succeed, or achieve with superhuman efficiency and effectiveness. In the long term, That pressure increasingly cultivates a paralysis over the kinds of ordinary, mundane, you know, high effort, low reward tasks that don't dramatically improve our lives or make an impact on society, but they're necessary. In other words, when you are expected or expect yourself to, quote, change the world, simple day-to-day maintenance carries with it a guilt or a burden of never doing enough, of never being enough. Peter sums it up well when she says, quote, why can't I get this mundane stuff done? Because I'm burned out. Why am I burnt out? Because I'm internalized. I've internalized the idea that I should be working all the time. Why have I internalized that idea? Because everything and everyone in my life has reinforced it since I was young. Life has always been hard, but many millennials are unequipped to deal with the particular ways in which it's become hard for us. That pressure that she describes has been increasing unnoticed by all of us, not just millennials, much like a frog swimming around in a pot of water slowly brought to a boil. We work hard towards shalom, but the way we do so 
too often incurs a significant cost to our own peace of mind and shalom of heart and without really doing much. Changing the world, quote unquote, is not a burden we were ever meant to carry. We can't rush or force kingdom expansion by buying fresh apples at King Supers and stapling it to them to a tree in our backyard, but that is what that pressure leads us to functionally believe is possible. Instead, organic growth happens slowly and secretly. It starts within us and expands from there, growing not by the power of our effort, but by the power of God's grace through our effort. And every time we forget that, we begin to think that we bear more than the image of our creator and begin expecting of ourselves that only his sovereign power and agency can do. The gap between that fantasy and reality is crushing. It will lead to a cycle of burnout and as Peterson describes, risks inoculating entire generations against the sacredness of the ordinary, our creaturely need for rest or meaningful dependence on God. The same humble hearts that Jesus illustrates with fertile soil in last week's parable are necessary to see our human-sized and God-dependent contribution to his kingdom. And it may not sound like it to those of us with noble ambitions to change the world, but this is profoundly liberating and humanizing. Yes, it requires us to let go of God-like ambitions, but that will free us to be more fully human. This posture that God invites us to into and to take on is beautifully summarized by Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 7, where he says, quote, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the, the growth. In fact, those two verses so fully summarize the point of Jesus' parable that I could have just led with that and skipped everything else I've said, because that's the point. But then you'd probably just nod your head, utter a pious, mm, or amen, and otherwise not fully appreciate how agreeing with a biblical truth is not the same thing as believing it. In fact, the degree to which you have heard everything I've said so far as a challenge rather than as a comfort is likely the degree to which you agree with me, but do not fully believe that it is good news. And I'm speaking for myself here too. Because remember, Jesus told this parable to disciples who also agreed with God's sovereign rule and kingdom promise, but where they were tempted with the same universal human impatience that we are, our baseline cultural pressure is an almost hyperbolic caricature of theirs. The point for them, as well as for us, is that the good news that God's kingdom is not dependent on us, on our success, on our achievement, on our standards, or on our timeline but on God's eternal promise to redeem all things. Hallelujah. Okay, let's talk about the second parable and then we're gonna tie all this together. First, let's clear up some things about what a mustard plant actually is. <laughs> if you look it up on Wikipedia, it looks like something between a weed and a wildflower, but the varietal common in Israel during this time was a hardy bush-like plant that typically grew to six to 12 feet tall. That's not tall for a tree, but sizable for a bush. It was the single smallest seed known to the average person in Jesus's day. So its growth truly was exponential. You would never guess, uh, you would never guess a plant from such a humble beginning could grow large enough to provide shade or be strong enough for even small birds to nest in its boughs. 
speaking of birds, actually, because that particular line is really important here. It echoes language from Old Testament passages like Daniel 4.12, Psalm 104.12, and Ezekiel 31.6. But Jesus is likely alluding specifically to Ezekiel 17, verses 22 through 24, which says this. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it, hear me, it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. The disciples hearing that language would have immediately thought to themselves, wait, the kingdom is a puny mustard plant and not a towering cedar. They would have been shocked and confused that Jesus would bring that passage's bird reference into his parable, but not also the cedar trees. And that confusion is precisely why Jesus told the parable in that way. He uses that cognitive dissonance to deepen and expand the meaning specifically of verse 24, where Ezekiel says, or where God through Ezekiel says, I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. You see, God does not just redeem and restore lesser trees from among a noble species. He so fundamentally transforms a lesser species to surpass natural boundaries, limitations, and norms to fulfill his noble purpose. In other words, Jesus is saying to us, I will not just use your humble efforts to multiply kingdom fruit, though I will. I will do so by fundamentally transforming you from the inside out such that all your neighbors and all the nations symbolized by the birds will find shelter and flourish through your presence. But I will change the world, not you. I have spoken. I will do it. These parables are reminders that God promised to bring about nothing less than the restoration of all things. The creational flourishing, original spirit, originally spoken into existence is now recreated by his word being sown in the soil of his church. Yes, the church, that church, our church, that weak, broken, humble, dismissed, unqualified, misfit institution and community. That is God's plan A, and he has no need for a backup. Never mind your efforts to change the world. He will do it. And he'll use you. Can you imagine how simultaneously encouraged and dubious the disciples would have been to hear that, <laughs> right? I can just picture Jesus telling them, hey, I know we don't look like much right now, but God will use you to change the world through you. And then disciples probably just looking at him and each other like, sure, Jesus, whatever you say, Jesus. But that is exactly what happened. These 12 measly disciples were also the 12 apostles, which means messenger, representing God to the 12 tribes of Israel, heralding the advent of the new covenant in Christ. They were too few, too powerless, 
too untrained, too foolish, too frequently lost in ways both metaphorical and literal, and otherwise too unanimously voted least likely to lead the most world-changing religious movement in human history by their peers. Church tradition says that all but maybe one of them were martyred, and while they did get to see the fruit of faith blossom in thousands of people, they also could not have fathomed that God would redeem the terrorist of persecuting them, the apostle Paul, to sow the seeds of faith that would transform the Roman Empire into the Holy Roman Empire mere decades after Christians were systematically persecuted and fed to lions. In many ways, the impatient part of American culture, which insists on making an impact right now, comes from an optimism rooted in the kingdom's exponential growth and impact. To be clear, the desire to progress toward Biblical shalom is noble and good, yet it is when we get impatient and forget that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth that we slowly but surely redefine kingdom in our own image. We compromise our faith and harm our neighbor. That happens both when we think we can individually or single-handedly do it on our own apart from the institutional church, as well as when the church becomes drunk on its own success and or uses people for its own ends. Not that, you know, any of that has any particular relevance to current events or anything, but what still stands as a record beyond any confusion or lack of clarity is this. The Christian church has been responsible for more social good and human flourishing than any other religion, worldview, or institution in human history, period. There is simply no argument to the contrary, only historical amnesia. To God not us, be all the glory thereof. Now, let's tie this together because all that said, I want to answer the so what in a more personal way. Several years ago, I was in a really dark place in an already dark season of life and ministry. I felt useless and functionally handcuffed, unable to use any of my strengths or do any real good in ministry. In other words, I felt a lot like I feel right now. if for very different reasons. And in the midst of that, I vividly remember a dear friend and mentor of mine, Greg Johnson, telling me, Brad, I know it doesn't feel like it, but this is God being very good to you right now. It was not exactly the encouragement I was hoping for, to say the least, but he went on to explain that he has seen too many gifted pastors disqualify themselves from pastoral ministry because they were always able to rely more on the strength of their giftedness than depend on God through their weakness. He told me, Brad, if you do nothing else in this season than to show those whom God has entrusted you to pastor how to suffer well and find strength in Christ rather than in yourself, you will actually have a greater impact on the kingdom than if you had every opportunity and ministry success you wish you had right now. I can count on one hand the number of people who get the nature of God's kingdom as deeply and profoundly as Greg does. But it has only occurred to me in the last few weeks that Jesus might have used that season to prepare me for this one. Making that connection and remembering that God grows his kingdom organically has been a remarkable help for me to resist or start to resist the pressures of performance or achievement 
and to be at least a little bit more content in my weakness. Again, I know it can feel, and so much more now than ever, like almost nothing you are doing is bearing any fruit. Nothing feels effortless right now. (laughs) Our superhuman capacity has been reduced to mere earthling status, and everything seems to have the green-tinted glow of kryptonite. That we didn't know we were operating at human superhuman capacity only makes that loss even more acute. And the temptation to emotionally and relationally withdrawal is all the stronger when simple connection requires so much logistical and safety coordination. And I'm especially thinking of those of you who have kids. So if you hear no other takeaway this week, hear this. I see you. I see that you are all doing so much to be faithful in your homes and in your marriages and as parents and as friends through your vocations, both paid and unpaid to your church and to your neighbors. It is in that context, that that feeling of, of being run over by a plow, but not seeing much, if any growth come out of it, that I want you to hear Jesus's words in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, when he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, up, my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, hear Jesus. If those words are too familiar for them to hit home, hear him say that what you're doing is enough. You are enough. And not because you have anything to offer, but because Jesus is enough and offers himself to you. In fact, Jesus doesn't just love you the same way, whether or the same way in the same degree, whether you fail or succeed. First Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. See, grace, <laughs> it's not just a divine ideal or preference. It is such a part of God's DNA of who he is, that he is unable the omnipotent creator of the universe is unable to do otherwise and would functionally cease to be God if he did. (laughs) I could not have fathomed that God would end that dark season of epic discouragement and uncertainty with being invited to do a church planting residency at the well in Boulder that would then culminate with the table launching two years after that. When I asked Matt Patrick, the lead pastor at the well, who also knew all about what I was going through at the time, when I asked him why he wanted damaged goods like me, he replied without hesitation, because you didn't quit. You didn't run from suffering, but sat in your weakness and let Jesus do his work. Now, I told him at the time, that's a lot easier to do that when you don't really have any other options, Um, (laughs) but that is beside the point. Because Matt understood something that we are all so slow to learn, myself included in this season, that it is ordinarily only when we come to the end of ourselves, when we can no longer fool ourselves into thinking we are gifted enough, strong enough, or faithful enough to follow Jesus as we ought, that his 
faithfulness becomes personally and potently real. It's only then that we experience growth and can taste the fruit thereof. I can think of few examples with greater or more shocking exponential growth than God using the mustard seed of that low point in my life to eventually plant not one, but ultimately two churches between the table and Redeemer Longmont. Who knows what he will do from here? (laughs) Who knows what organic renewal he is using this crappy season to fertilize even now? Pun intended. Who knows what exponential growth he is currently sowing, the harvest of which may not bear fruit for two or three generations. The Lord has spoken. He will do it. Jesus has done a lot more with a lot less and always at a much slower pace than we expect and a much greater impact than we can imagine. I'll end with this. Psalm 1 says, that the righteous are like trees called to a faithfulness that simply roots itself beside the streams of God's grace and bears fruit in its season. It does not manufacture fruit on demand. We are in the midst of a long winter, both literally and metaphorically. So focus on tilling the soil of your heart, deepening your roots in your church, sowing whatever gospel seed you can and providing shade for your neighbors where you see the opportunity. It is not only okay that you're not changing the world right now, Jesus insists on that being his job, which he will accomplish in and through his body, the church. Our job is to release our death grip on achieving our own dignity, value, and worth by giving ourselves up to a collective shared dependence on him. That's it. That is how Jesus says the kingdom grows both organically and exponentially. The Lord has spoken. He will do it. Don't think he won't.